So once again, this morning, we come back to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we're picking up today in chapter 5, looking together at verses 3 through 14. And our title today is Christianity and the New Sexual Standard. So in the passages we are currently studying, we are looking at what it means to put off the old man, put off uh, the things of the past, the things that we were previously engaged in, those sinful activities, and put on the new man. We as God's people are to be living differently than we previously lived. We're to be living now a life uh, in the spirit. And Paul told us, began telling us actually in uh, verse 25, what that looks like. Let me remind you, we are to stop lying and speak the truth. Uh, we are to stop stealing, and rather we are to work hard so we, so we can help others. Uh, we're not to use degrading speech, but we are to use our words to build others up. We are to put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, all of those kinds of things, and we are to put on kindness, tenderheartedness. We are to show grace to one another, and we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. So we stop there, but as we pick up in verse 3, next on the list of things that we are to put off are sins that are of a sexual nature. And so... Let's pick up reading in verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In... The time that Paul wrote this, first century AD Roman culture, there were no taboos regarding sexual behavior. It was basically a sexual free-for-all. It was the message of the gospel 
that brought in a new sexual ethic. So that the ethics that we have known here in our nation and in most of uh, Western civilization for uh, literally centuries is really the result of the impact of the gospel. And in, in bringing in this new sexual ethic, there was now uh, a condemnation of things that were um, perfectly acceptable to the culture at the time. Things like adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality. Uh, these were all a part of life amongst the Romans. But this new sexual ethic was based on the understanding that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the possession of God. Since God created us, redeemed us, and indwells us, he obviously has the right to tell us how we can and cannot use our bodies sexually. And so here in the passage we just read, as well as many other portions of uh, the New Testament scripture, we have instruction on how we are to uh, live, how we are to conduct ourselves in regard to sexuality. And so here in verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Now, the two words that Paul uses here, translated fornication and uncleanness, the first word is the Greek word pornea, and you can figure out what words we get from that word. It's pretty obvious. The second word, the word translated uncleanness or impurity, is akatharsia. And when you take these two words, they cover every kind of sexual sin. So here in, in these two words, Paul is just, he's covering the gamut of sexual sin. So to sin sexually, according to scripture, is to engage in sexual activity outside of the God-ordained boundaries for sex. Now, we're talking about sexual sin. Many people in the culture today would say there's no such thing as sexual sin. That, that was exactly the mentality um, back at the time that this epistle was written. For most people, there was no such thing. This was, this was revolutionary, the stuff that the apostles were, were teaching, the stuff that uh, was, was brought to these former uh, Gentile idol worshipers that came through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so just so we're, we're crystal clear about this, according to the scripture, there is such thing as sexual sin. And to sin sexually, as I said, is to engage in sexual activity outside of the God-ordained boundaries. So, so what is the God-ordained boundary? This is, a lot of times people ask questions like, well, you know, sexually, well, what about this? Can I, you know, 
can I do this but not that? Or, you know, how far can you go? People ask those kinds of questions. Here's the boundary. God's boundary for sex is within the male and female marital relationship. In that context, you can have all the sex you want. Outside of that context, you can't be involved in sexual activity. So God, this is, this is pretty narrow. It's a pretty narrow standard. But again, remember, God's the one who created our bodies. God's the one who knows how we're going to function best. God has a standard. And he's going to enforce that standard. And it doesn't matter who disagrees with him on this. This is an inflexible thing when it comes to God. His mind has never changed about this stuff. And it certainly hasn't changed today. So... Any sexual activity outside of that relationship, the marital relationship between a male and a female, any sexual activity outside of that relationship is, according to Scripture, sin. So, we have to be clear about this. God will never sanction sexual relations outside of marriage. He will never sanction that. Now, there, there was a time not all that long ago when people understood that if you were, um, you know, sleeping with somebody outside of marriage, they, they understood that that was sin. It was even referred to by the, the general population as living in sin. But today, things have reversed so rapidly in this regard. Uh, today, you're looked at as some sort of a freak if you're not having sex uh, before you're married or outside of marriage. You know, it, it's almost in the minds of so many people a prerequisite to, uh, it's part of preparation for marriage. Well, you know, you've got to have sex before you get married. You've got to make sure you're compatible. That's the mentality today. But God will never sanction sexual relations outside of marriage. God will never sanction adulterous sexual relations. So those today who say, you know, you can't be expecting people nowadays to be uh, loyal to just one person. And some people would even argue and say, well, you know, uh, I, I've heard this argument myself. Um, you know, I, I have a really strong sex drive. God certainly couldn't expect me to just be faithful to one person. Oh, yes, he does. That's, that's the point of you shall not commit adultery. And there's, there's no... Uh, flexibility with this with God. He will never sanction adulterous sexual relations. God will never sanction intimate sexual relations among non-married persons, even though they exclude sexual intercourse. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you know, we haven't, we're, we're not actually having sex, but we're doing other things. Those other things fall into the category of sin. And then finally, God will never sanction same-sex sexual relations. It doesn't matter if the culture is accepting it. It doesn't matter if the courts are uh, promoting it. It doesn't matter if the president believes in it. God will never sanction it. And that's just the way it is. Now, I, I say that because it's, it's crazy what we see going on in our culture. In, in many ways, it's, it's crazy. But uh, among Christians, people who have maybe... 
um, you know, had a past where they've been involved in same-sex relationships or struggled with that or whatever. Uh, you know, what I've seen recently is some people, because the courts are now saying, well, it's okay to do, some, some people who have previously struggled with it and understood it to be sin have decided, oh, well, now that the courts are saying it's okay, I'm going to go marry my same-sex partner, and I'm just going to believe that God's okay with it because the government's okay with it. You know, there's lots of things that government's okay with that God's not okay with at all. So don't be fooled by that. God's standard doesn't change. It's, a, it's an eternal standard. God set these things. They are truly set in stone. And it doesn't matter what people think of them. It doesn't matter if uh, all, of, um, all of the population decides that a certain thing is right. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, uh, a fallacy is not any less a fallacy simply because it becomes a fashion. And that's exactly what's happening today. Because fallacies are now the fashion, people say, well, it's no longer a problem. Because it's a fashion, because everybody's doing it. But the scripture is clear. Fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Now, the covetousness here that Paul's talking about is not covetousness the way we normally think of it, having to do with possessions or, uh, you know, with greed for money or whatever. The context is sexual. So the covetousness here is um, a lustful attitude, living in a, a, a perpetual state of lust for sexual things. That's what he's talking about. He says, let, let, let it not even be named among you. And then he says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. So what Paul's describing here is what we would commonly think of if, you know, when we talk about a person who has a filthy mind and, and as a result of the filthy mind, this filth just flows out of their mouth. You hear it in their speech. And occasionally you, you come across a person like that who uh, no longer has any, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no guard any longer. It's just sort of gone. And everything that's in their heart and mind, they just spew out of their mouth. Um, this is the kind of thing that Paul says should never be the case among us as God's people thinking about and talking about. And again, we see this so, uh, it's so permeated our culture today, hasn't it? You can hardly watch a TV program today, uh, you know, something that's being currently produced without all kinds of sexually perverted, suggestive kinds of speech in it. It's just, it's what it is now. It's, it's come to this. And it's almost like people think it's impossible to have any kind of entertainment without this component to it. But all you have to do is go back, you know, 40, 50 years and watch some of the old TV programs. They were great. They were uh, enjoyable. They were oftentimes humorous. But they had none of the filth that you get today. But this is where our culture is today. So we're, we're not to be engaging in that. Rather... We are to be giving thanks. We are uh, 
to be thankful for the deliverance that God has brought to us and the new life that he's given to us. And that's the things that we are uh, to be expressing as we speak. And then he says in verse five, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person nor covetous man, and listen, who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, remember covetousness is here a form of extreme sexual lust. And what does Paul say about it? He says, it's idolatry. We are living in a, in a time in our culture uh, that it could be referred to as a time uh, of the idolization of sex. So sex has become a massive idol in our culture today. That our modern culture is obsessed with sexuality hardly needs proving. We are regularly bombarded with images and ideas that carry sexual connotations of one kind or another. Many in this generation, many in this generation see freedom of sexual expression as the most basic and essential human right. That's what's happening in our courts today. That's what's happening on the legislative level. Somehow it's gotten into the minds of certain people that uh, sexual expression of whatever sort you desire is your human right. And after all, remember uh, the Bill of Rights. We have a right to the pursuit of life and liberty and happiness and so forth. They conveniently forget the one part in the Bill of Rights that refers to having been endowed with this liberty by our creator. So our creator has something to say about what kind of liberties we're talking about here. But that is, as I said, conveniently overlooked. So the culture's obsession with sexuality has also, as you know, impacted the church. Many churches and entire denominations are in turmoil over issues pertaining to sexuality, particularly homosexuality. And so we see the, the idolization of sex in our culture. But like every idol, listen, those who make and promote these idols, like every idol, the promise is much greater than what is delivered. See, it, for, for many people today, somehow sex has been turned into like a savior. You know, I'm going to embrace this sexual identity and this is going to save me. But like all idols, they promise, but they never deliver. Just like we read, they have eyes, but they can't really see. Ears, but they can't hear. Mouths, but they don't utter anything. Hands, but they can't help. Feet, but they can't run. That's the nature of an idol. In the end, an idol can't do anything for you. All idols do is bring you down. And for those who buy into the idea today that somehow there's some sort of salvation in sex, that you're going to find yourself, your true identity, you're going to be happy, you're finally going to be liberated and all of that, it's, it's a delusion. And... People discover that delusion, but sometimes they discover it too late. So Paul warns us here. These are strong warnings, but they're, they're true. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So there's a lot of deception about this in the culture today. And the deception is being put forth in different phrases and slogans and things that people say. I've heard people say, look, God is not concerned one way or another about your sexual activity. And, and the really crazy thing is to hear this coming from people who are in positions of leadership in certain segments of the church. God's not really concerned about that. And like I said over the past few weeks, there's a, a new sort of perspective now. God wants me happy. God's love for me is unconditional. Doesn't matter what I do. And God's concerned with, with you know, more important things than just, you know, how I conduct myself sexually. He's concerned with the plight of the poor and he's concerned with the lack of uh, education and all of those kinds of things. Well, okay. God's concerned with the plight of the poor. I won't argue against that. He certainly is. And we should be as well. But we don't say, well, we're going to focus on the poor and we're going to neglect this other thing that God tells us about here. No, we do it all. So God is concerned. He's very concerned. He's gone out of his way to put quite a bit of information in the biblical text about how we are to behave ourselves sexually. So those kinds of statements, uh, people are saying now in regard to homosexuality that the church has gotten it wrong on homosexuality. For all of these centuries, the church has misunderstood what the Bible was saying about this. And what you will hear people say today is, well, you know, they, what they were talking about in the Bible when they talk about homosexuality is not what we have today. Because back then, they didn't understand things like sexual orientation. They didn't understand about the possibility of a true love relationship between people of the same sex and so forth. So what they're really saying about the Bible is that the Bible was written by men who didn't know any better, and they just wrote down the things that they thought because of their cultural influences and their lack of uh, scientific understanding. But now we know better because of science, maybe, or because of psychology or whatever. But in saying that, what they're essentially saying is that the Bible's not God's word, it's man's word. It's human opinion. And now we've found out the facts, so those opinions no longer hold any weight. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe that the Bible came to us, yes, through the pen of men, but holy men of God who wrote as they were inspired by the Spirit. We don't believe the Bible is the fallible opinions of people who wrote thousands of years ago. We believe the Bible is God's eternal word as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or however many thousand years ago it was originally penned. That's what I believe. And I think many of you believe that as well. And of course, that's a belief that is seriously problematic for a lot of people today. But that's what we believe. That God had these things written down for us who knows everything about everything, 
who knows about our sexuality because he created us as sexual beings, who knows how we are to conduct ourselves properly sexually according to what he intended and planned. He, he knows all of that. So let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul is saying. Don't, don't let somebody come along and fool you into thinking that these standards no longer apply, they're outdated, they're old-fashioned, or any, anything like that. He says, because the wrath of God will come upon the children of disobedience. So to live in sexual sin will, if unrepented of, will bring about judgment at some time. That's the warning that is given here. Do not be partakers with them. And then he says this in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were once darkness. This is the way you used to live. And of course, many in the Ephesian church would have acknowledged that, yes, indeed, that was my former life. Just like many in the Christian church today would acknowledge that, yes, indeed, we used to live that way. We used to live in sin. We used to live in sexual sin. But we are now light in the Lord. We were once darkness. It's interesting that Paul says here, you were once darkness. He doesn't simply say you were once in the darkness. He says you were once darkness. This is where we were. We were darkened in our understanding of these things. And the darkness was dwelling in us. And so we behaved just like everybody else behaved. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So, remember, putting off the old, putting on the new. Walking now as the children of light. The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit in our life is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So, the change of lifestyle. And then finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So how do we know what's right and wrong? That's a big question. How do we know what is right and wrong? Well, God has shown us what is right and wrong. When Paul is talking here about the, the light ma manifesting what is the darkness, he's talking about the truth of God's word. God's word tells us what's right and what's wrong. And when it comes down to these things, you know, to me, it's a very simple proposition. And maybe sometimes I'm too simple, but... It's just the way it is. But to me, it's very simple. If there is no God, then all things are permissible. If there is no God, all things are permissible. You can do anything sexually that you desire to do if there is no God. Because if there is no God, there really cannot be, at the end of the day, uh, anything that is absolutely right or wrong. All there can really be are just... 
a, a variety of human opinions about it based on tradition and things of that nature. So if there is no God, then, like it was in the time of the Romans, it's a sexual free-for-all. You just do what you want. And who could say that that's wrong? It's just a, it's a, a preference. I don't prefer that, but you do, so that's the way it goes. If there is no God. But if there's a God, and the Bible is his word, then there's a standard that needs to be taken seriously. And of course, that's the position that we hold as God's, as Christians, we hold that position. So when I'm engaging in conversation with people about sexual issues, whether they be fornication or adultery or same-sex relations or whatever, to me, this is, this is where the, this is the best place to start. Getting back to God. Listen, if there's a God, then I think just the very concept of God, you would think that God means rules, in a sense. You know, God, the idea of a God is that there's somebody who's going to tell you what to do. And this is the big problem, isn't it? Nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do with their bodies. As a convenient forgetting that our bodies aren't really our bodies. They're just loaned to us temporarily as homes for our spirit. We had no say-so in them coming into existence and we will have very little say-so in their going out of existence. So we come back around to the issue of right and wrong and we know what's right because of the light of God's word. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So, as we close today, a couple of things to apply for us here. First of all, know this, that the biblical teaching on sexuality has never been popular. It's never been popular. Um, the Christians were not admired for rejecting the sexual immoralities of the Romans. This was one of the big issues that, that caused the, the Roman culture and the church to, to be in conflict and, and resulted in the persecution of Christians. Uh, Augustine, in the early part of the 5th century, said that the Romans despised Christians because they opposed uh, their unrestrained sexual lifestyles. So there was a, a real animosity between Roman culture and the Christian church. One finds a similar attitude being directed toward Christians today. Now, for a long, long time, there was a, a uh, culture a Christianized cultural situation that supported, to a certain degree, uh, supported culturally even a, a biblical sexual morality. Did you know that up until as late as 1999, 30 states had um, laws that were uh, prevented homosexuality, 30 states up until 99. 
So there, there was a, a long period of time in our culture where the, there was a Christianization that had taken place that, that sort of remained here within the culture, but that is in the process of being completely rejected, and we're living in the midst of this revolution that's taking place, this rejection of this biblical sexual ethic. It's being rejected today. And we're seeing that there's a, a hostility toward those who would hold to it. So how do we navigate the times that we're living in? What should our posture be today as Christians in this cultural situation? Well, number one, I'm going to give you three points and then I'm going to close. Number one, we need to stand in the light of God's word. People are falling into sin today sexually because they're rejecting God's word and they're going with things like, um, well, I just feel strongly that this is what I'm supposed to do or I feel strongly that God understands where I'm at and he's given me permission to do this. I can't tell you how many times people have told me things like that. Well, I feel like God has told me I can divorce my wife because she's never really satisfied me sexually and he loves me so much he wants me to have somebody that will really bless me. Almost verbatim quote from somebody. Talk about empty, deceiving words. But you see, the problem is People are going with how they feel. Well, I, I feel this. One of the elementary things as a Christian that we learn is that you don't go with how you feel. And of course, this is the, the big thing with the same-sex attraction thing. Well, I, I feel attracted to a person of the opposite sex. Okay, that, okay. That, that does happen. People do feel that way. But you don't let your feelings control you. God's given you the ability to not be controlled by your feelings. And so we have got to stand in light of God's word. That's where we stand. That's the truth that we stand on. Even though we might have certain feelings. I might have certain feelings that other women are very beautiful. But I have to deny those feelings. Because I made a commitment to my wife to be faithful to her. So no matter how strong those feelings might be, I can't just say, well, you know, I felt this and therefore I concluded that it must be okay because I felt this way. We stand in the light of God's word. Secondly, we must live in sexual purity. As Christians, one of the biggest problems today with our witness as Christians in regard to sexual issues is that we preach it, but we don't live it. That's the problem. I mean, how many times has it been the case where you find there's a pastor who's preaching hellfire and brimstone against people in sexual sin, and then you find out he's been having affairs? This has not just happened once. This happens over and over again. 
So you see, we have to live ourselves in sexual purity. We can't just be preaching to others that they ought to live in a certain way. We have to live that way as well. One of the big jokes among people who are uh, taking the position against our position on marriage today is that, oh, you Christians don't really care, care about marriage like you say you do. Oh, you're fighting it now that we're talking about same-sex marriage, but you weren't really fighting it when it came to the issue of divorce. And it's true. There's a lot of truth to it. There, there was a time when it was crystal clear among Christians that divorce was not acceptable. Today, that is completely gone. Well, not completely, but to a large extent, that's, that's gone. It's just that standard has been set aside. But then we come along and say, well, you know, we're pro-marriage. Well, why then have you allowed for all this divorce? So you see, my point is we have to live it. If we're not living it, it's hypocritical and it's meaningless to those that we're seeking to persuade that there is something better. Thirdly and finally, what is our posture to be? As sinners saved by grace, as sinners saved by grace, let's seek to humbly and graciously show those in sexual sin God's better way. You see, we always have to remember that we're saved by grace. It's not that we're better than anybody else. It's not that we're morally superior to other people. It is simply that we are saved by grace. We were once darkness, just like everybody else, but now we are light in the Lord because of God's grace to us. And so, you know, the day of, of pointing the finger and shouting in condemnation at people about their sin, uh, that falls on deaf ears today. People don't listen to that. But what they will listen to is humility and grace and love and somebody who's saying, look, I know where you're at. I was there at one time, or maybe I wasn't there, but... Uh, I was somewhere else. I, I, I am a sinner too. So I get that. But let me show you that God has a better way. God has a better way. After all, God's the one who created sex. And he created it so that we would enjoy it. But he put parameters because he knows also that it's a double-edged sword. It can be a great blessing or it can be a great curse. If we do it God's way, it's a blessing. If we do it our way, the world's way, there's no blessing in it. There's no joy in it. There's no lasting love in that, whatever it might be. God has the better way. And so may he help us in this environment that we find ourselves in, may he help us to live righteously, to stand on his word, and to exemplify his grace toward others. So Lord, that's our prayer today. We're asking you, Lord, you know these are perplexing times for us as your people.
And most of us would have never imagined that we would be living under the circumstances that we're living under. But here we are, Lord. We're finding that the, the, the scriptures are becoming more and more relevant, not less and less. So help us, Lord, to be pure sexually. Help us, Lord, to set ourselves apart as you are instructing us to here, to be walking in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the flesh. And we pray, Lord, for others that are trying to find fulfillment through sexuality in some sort. Their identity is there. Lord, may they see through this idolatry. May they see the, the end of it, the futility of it. May they turn to you, we pray. Lord, pour out your spirit in these days. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.